Psalm 104, 24 declares this, O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. We find there the psalmist here looking at the created world, looking out at everything that has been made, the hills, the valleys, the streams, the seas, everything in God's creation. And what does he see but the handiwork of an all-wise creator? Only the most intelligent and wisest of minds could have made everything that you can see in the cosmos. So the psalmist looks out and everything manifests the wisdom of God and the things that have been made. But we saw Solomon also seeing the exact same thing. We looked at that back in Proverbs chapter 3. When he looked at God's wisdom and creation, he expresses the same truth. Proverbs three nineteen through 20. The Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the deeps broke open and the clouds dropped down the dew. Wisdom, understanding, knowledge, right? All attributes of our all-wise creator because he is all wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. This creative power to speak all of the created world into existence out of nothing is nothing short of his work of wisdom. Because it comes from the essence of his being because he is wisdom. We looked at that last week. Wisdom spoke and the cosmos came into existence. Powerful. We looked at wisdom last week as a communicable attribute. And we said communicable attributes are those things that are true of God, attributes, virtues that are true of God, which he graciously shares with his image bearers. Love, mercy, kindness, Even the ability to exhibit grace and forgiveness and things of that nature are attributes of God. And wisdom is an attribute of God that is also communicated in a small and limited and partial way to mankind. And we can praise God with that, that in his common grace, in his benevolence, he's bestowed upon all of humanity a measure of wisdom for human flourishing and thriving. Without that, could you imagine the mess we would truly find ourselves in? But in our passage today, we're going to see another attribute of wisdom, another perspective of wisdom that is actually not communicated. It's incommunicable. Because here we see wisdom as this transcendent act of creation. A display of God's omniscience, a display of God's omnipotence, something that you and I do not share with our Creator. No one here is omniscient. No one here is omnipotent, but the all-wise Creator is. So through this teaching today, we're going to see that wisdom, the wisdom of God in creation specifically, what it says about wisdom and why we need to follow in the ways of wisdom. There's a creator here who gave us all life, but this the same creator can also take it as well. And our all wise creator extends to us and offers to us eternal life. And how we respond to that is a matter of life and death. Don't mistake that. Let's look at Proverbs, the eighth chapter. We're going to read 22 through the end of the chapter. Hear the words of the living God. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago, I was set up at the first before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. 
when there were no springs abounding with water. Before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. Before he had made the earth with its fields or the first of the dusts of the world. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep. When he made firm the skies above. When he established the fountains of the deep. When he assigned to the sea its limit so that the waters might not transgress his command. When he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him. Like a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world, and delighting in the children of man. And now, O sons, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Hear instruction and be wise, and do not neglect it. Blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates. Waiting beside my doors. For whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. These are the words of the Lord. Now, we've looked at length here in our study through Proverbs. uh, Solomon's teaching tool uh, in personifying wisdom. Presenting her to his son in these lessons as a a beautiful, intelligent, attractive woman, right? So that his son would pursue wisdom. But it's a brilliant teaching tool. But we know this aspect of lady wisdom, this, this beautiful woman of wisdom here, is a placeholder. It stands for something. It stands for the father's teaching, the father's instructions, the commands that he is telling his son to obey and follow concerning the way of wisdom. Lady Wisdom also stands for all of the spiritual inheritance that the father is intending to pass on to his son, that his son must receive and embrace in order to have the rewards of wisdom and life. So he tells his son to get wisdom, pursue wisdom, follow wisdom, love wisdom, marry wisdom, treasure her, and he'll find life. Now we look at chapter 8 here, and it is a... It's quite the imaginary poem, right? Highly figurative. Uh, A lot that is happening here because now we have wisdom giving a lengthy speech about herself. A lengthy discourse about who she is, her attributes, her virtues, and her value. And she's calling out to the simple, the gullible. Those who haven't made a commitment to the ways of wisdom and to loving wisdom. And she beckons them to learn from her, to be discipled by her, to enter into her school of learning and discipleship. We find her speaking loudly. We find her in the heights. We find her at the city gates, at the entrance to the gates. We find her at the intersections of the roads, of the ways. And she's calling us, everyone, to follow her. She's boasting about herself, saying she only speaks what is true and righteous She bestows her virtues upon those who love her and value her. So now Solomon is going to take this imagery from the temporal, from this existence in the here and now, on the horizontal plane, and he is going to escalate it to to transcendent heights, demonstrating wisdom's act in creation by what we just read. That Wisdom is not just here. She's not in present just in this world. She is far more ancient than you and I can ever imagine. 
Wisdom's existence predates creation itself. So look at what we have him saying there in verse 22 and 23. The Lord, this is wisdom speaking, right? Personified wisdom. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago I was set up at the first before the beginning of the earth. Now, before we get into all of this here, remember, this is poetry. This is poetry here, okay? This really isn't a divine lady-like figure called Lady Wisdom that God actually created, okay? (laughs) That God actually possessed, who is a separate entity from God, right? That's not that. We cannot read this literally, okay? We must seek to understand what it figuratively represents, okay? That's important, okay? Verse 22, we see here, wisdom states that she was the Lord's possession well before he created the earth. Now, some of the translations you might read might render this a little bit differently. Like the NIV reads that, the wis- that wisdom was brought forth as the first of his works. That she was formed or created at the very beginning. So again, be careful to remember, this is poetry, it's figurative language, so we don't get tripped up. <clears throat> Here's why this is important, okay? We've been talking about wisdom in Proverbs as a type of Christ, The the wisdom of Proverbs points us where? To the wisdom of God, which is Christ. He is the fullest manifestation of the wisdom of God and wisdom from God. We've We've been talking almost every week. We mention that, right? But here's what we can't forget. The wisdom of Proverbs is not all there is to say of Christ. It is not all of Christ, especially when we come to something like chapter 8 right here. It's not a full and robust Christology that is being presented to us here in chapters 8. It's not telling us everything we need to know about Jesus Christ. Not exactly at all. But it is pointing us to Christ. Remember, at the time that this was written, Christ is a mystery. Christ is a mystery wrapped up in the types and shadows of of the covenant, of the law of God, the temple, the kingdom of Israel, and the people of God. Now, that mystery has been fully revealed, right? We get the full revelation of that in Jesus Christ. But at the time of this writing, that that wasn't the case at all. However, the attributes expressed about wisdom in Proverbs are most fully and perfectly seen in Christ, who possesses them completely, and he has a whole lot more than personified wisdom here in Proverbs, right? He's the full treasure of it. So when we read here that the Lord possessed wisdom or brought wisdom into existence, he's not saying that wisdom is a created being. So we don't extrapolate that to Christ, this language here, this figurative language, and extrapolate that to Christ and infer that he was a created being because we've been saying that he is wisdom and knowledge. You following with me? Okay, it's important. Because this particular text here, 8, 22, and 23, has been used by many who have taught Christological heresies since the beginning of the church. To infer, to mean, to declare that Jesus uh, Christ was the first of God's creation. You have these wonderful door knockers that go around neighborhoods, right? The Jehovah's Witnesses, they're some of the chief ones to, to, to tell you that, no, no, Christ is... is He's not. He was a created being. In fact, he's Michael the archangel. 
In his incarnation, he was Jesus Christ, but he was, he was the first of one of God's creation, the supreme creation of God. He was made, there's no way he is eternal, the eternal son of God, and co-eternal with God the Father, right? No such thing, they would say. It's the same lie spread by a man named Arius in the 4th century. He was an influential uh, priest in Alexandria, and he looked at this particular passage and began to teach a particular heresy that's now known as Arianism. Okay? He looked at Proverbs 8.22 and 23 and determined that, well, since the New Testament declares that Jesus, Paul says in Corinthians, Jesus is the wisdom of God and wisdom from God, and this verse speaks of the creation of wisdom. So wisdom had a beginning. Wisdom is Christ. And because he had a big beginning, then that means he cannot be eternal. There, there's no way he can be the co-eternal son of God because he was a creation of God. You see the sloppy work right there? And why we have to be careful when we look at figurative language, metaphorical language, and, and try to draw all of these connections and, and make them literally fit into things that we know to be true. Proverbs is, is not telling us everything we need to know about Christ, but it tells us a whole lot of things that we do know and see perfected fully and manifest fully in Christ Jesus. So Arius being an influential uh, figure, right? His teaching spread like wildfire. And, and this is why we get the Council of Nicaea, right? It was convened in order to, 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 to you know, come against uh, this particular heresy that was spreading throughout the church, right? Men and women, all important figures, you know, who were, who were uh, distorted by this particular teaching. Now we had bishops coming from all over the place and saying, we got to do something about this. This doesn't line up with our view of Scripture and what we understand to be true about the nature of Jesus Christ, the divinity of Jesus Christ. And one of the things we confess, the Nicene Creed came out of that. It's the church's definitive declaration about the divinity of Christ. He is the co-eternal Son of God, the same substance as the Father, the same divine essence. Not a lesser being, not a created being, but you can see again when we take Scripture like this and distort it, where this kind of craziness comes out here. So again, personified wisdom points to Christ. He's not a created being. Now, this is a great hint for one of the questions you're going to see in that survey. So remember it. He is not a created being, but revealed in Scripture as the one through whom all things were made. We see that in John chapter 1, right? Verses 1 to 3. What do we know? In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, but also the declaration is, and the Word was God, right? Verse 2, he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. That scripture speaks of both his eternality and his equality with God. Both are stated, as well as his role as the active agent in creation. When it says in the beginning, it doesn't mean like he had a start, he had a beginning, but rather at the beginning of all things, he was already there. And he's the one who made everything that you and I see. The creator did not create himself. He's always existed. Colossians 1.16, Paul declares this as well. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Everything, everything exists 
by and everything exists for the glory, enjoyment, and pleasure of the unrivaled Son of God. Don't ever forget it. This is one of the most important and foundational truths of our faith. Jesus is God. Not a created being. Not something that came out of the Father at some point in history or at his incarnation. That's when he appeared. He has always been. He has always existed. And he is the agent of creation. So what is Solomon trying to convey about wisdom in saying that the Lord possessed wisdom at the beginning? In the ages of old. Well, there's a few things I think we can draw from these poetic lines, these figurative lines about what Solomon is trying to convey to us. The first thing I want you to see here is that wisdom's beginning did not start with man. Wisdom's beginning was not with man. If wisdom stands for the Father's teaching by stating that wisdom existed before creation, it invests the Father's teaching with a certain pattern of nobility tracing its antiquity before creation. The father is telling his son, my teachings are older than the world itself. Think about that for a moment. Here's a father sitting with his young son, teaching him the way of wisdom, telling him to follow wisdom. And he's got all these rival voices around him competing for his attention, his affection and allegiance. And he says, listen, all those teachings, those are new. They're fads. They're lies. What I'm conveying to you has been around forever. Before you came into existence, before this world was made, everything we see in the cosmos was made, wisdom was there. Wisdom has always existed. That means wisdom has priority in time and rank over the rest of creation. She is supreme. She is first. So if she existed before man, and she was uh, present before the world came into being, then she cannot be the result of man's accumulated knowledge. Wisdom's origin doesn't begin with man, and man cannot claim any part in wisdom's existence or progression in human history. It's a divine origin. It's an eternal origin. Because wisdom is possessed by God, then she is as eternal as God himself. Wisdom transcends human knowledge. Why must we follow wisdom and listen to her? Because she's eternal. She's eternal. She's been around. Man didn't invent wisdom. It comes from God. Additionally, we can see that wisdom has claim to ultimate authority. Because wisdom was around and observed the creation, again in this figurative language here, uh, observed the creation from its very beginning, only wisdom knows the whole of the story. She had a front row seat to creation. She's an eyewitness to the creation story and the Lord's creative work. She was there before God made anything. She was there while God was making everything. So wisdom alone has the comprehensive knowledge Of all things. So if wisdom is the skill that we've been talking about. Skill mankind needs to live rightly. Then we need to have wisdom. Because wisdom alone knows how everything is supposed to work. She knows how God made things to function. She was around before anything. So she can speak dogmatically. 
Her declarations are authoritative. And that makes her the ultimate competent counselor. Listen to wisdom. She knows how it's supposed to work. Why? Because she was there. She was there. She observed. She watched before. And she was there during. So she can be trusted to speak what is true and right. All other rival voices to wisdom are meaningless in the face of this reality of wisdom's ultimate authority. Again, wisdom speaks in verse 24 through 26 how she was around before anything was made. And in 27 through 29, which is really just one long sentence right through, through the end of that thought of how she was present as God was creating. She was there before, during, and after creation. Who else can make that claim? Can the adulteress make that claim? Can, can woman folly make that claim? Can any other rival voice that we've already looked at in, in Proverbs make a claim like this? Who else can equal the counsel that wisdom can bring? Who else can speak with such incontrovertible truth and authority? No one. No one. So by presenting wisdom in this close proximity to the Lord before creation and then present during the act of creation, Solomon is showing this intimate relationship, this intimate closeness between the Lord and wisdom. If you want to know the Lord, know wisdom. You know wisdom, you know the Lord. She is close to the Lord. So who else are you going to listen to? What other words would you possibly want to treasure more than the words of wisdom who has ultimate authority? Why else do we continually exhort you to be in God's word, to know truth, to know wisdom from his word? It's ancient wisdom. It's eternal wisdom from God the Father. Thirdly, I think we can see here that wisdom reveals this, this all-wise creator. The magnitude of creation proclaims there is a great and powerful creator to be feared. Why? Because I think we can see from creation that this is a creator, a God who can do whatever he pleases. A God who has no limit. A God whose power is so extensive that he spoke in the world. The cosmos came into being. Romans 1.20 declares for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So what? They... Unbelievers, those who suppress the truth of God and their unrighteousness, are without excuse. Everything about creation proclaims its creator. Everything about creation demonstrates, manifests, reveals something about these attributes of God. Namely what? His eternal power. His omnipotence. And that's through the general revelation of creation. Humanity knows there is a God. You know... They could look at creation and they go, wow, that just kind of popped out of nowhere. Right? The mind, think about this, the mind and power required for creation is beyond human comprehension. So only a fool 
Only when someone so blind and in their spiritual darkness can look at creation and go, there's no God. Only a fool would do that. So when Solomon writes, as we saw in the first chapter, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom or the beginning of knowledge, he means wisdom's foundation is that the Lord is to be reverenced and worshipped because he is the all-powerful, eternal, all-wise creator. And if you don't recognize and acknowledge the creator, you are a fool who despises wisdom and knowledge. And you hate it. Fourthly, Solomon's also communicating that wisdom extols God's design and order in creation. Solomon is communicating here through this personification of wisdom how God's creative and wise decrees and work have given lasting or enduring structure and order to the cosmos. One merely need to observe our world, look up to the heavens, right? Look out to the sea, look, look at the beautiful landscape of, of, of our world here to see the evidence of the great skill required to create everything in the cosmos. The evidence of the skill of the all-wise creator is everywhere you look. Again, only a fool would say there was none. All creation declares the Lord's handiwork. It expresses the great care and order with which it was made. And here's the difference between our creator and us. We we want to design something. We want to make something. Right? We generally start with an idea, a general idea, a concept. We see something in our mind that we're trying to do. But seldom does it turn out exactly as we wanted it to. I start graphic design projects or in the past doing web development and and I had a concept. I'd sketch things out. I'd have an idea of what the final product should be. But oftentimes as I'm working it, I've got to scrap that idea or I couldn't execute that idea or it didn't come out exactly as I had imagined or thought or wanted it to. And the the end product comes out and sometimes it's vastly different than what I had set out to do in the beginning. But God's creative work is not like ours. From the very beginning, his work was guided by wisdom. He knew exactly what he was doing. He knew exactly what he wanted to see in the world he was filling and shaping and forming. So what he spoke was exactly what he determined it to be and purposed it to be. What he spoke into existence and being wasn't different from what he had in mind. The world in its original creation, the landscape, the, the, the towering mountains, the heights, the hills, the valleys, the streams, the, the vegetation, all of that was carefully crafted by him according to wisdom. Everything is exactly how it's supposed to be in the perfection of how he made it. The world was ordered. Of course, sin has brought disorder into the world, but nevertheless, there is Design and function in order in God's creation. And wisdom shows that to us. Things function according to the wise design of the grand architect of the cosmos. Thank God for that. Notice the metaphorical phrases used in verses 27 through 29. Speaking about the Lord's work in creation. When he established the heavens. Think about that. When he drew a circle in the face of the deep. When he made Firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit, when he marked out the foundations of the earth. 
That is intention, not accident. Nothing accidental in creation. God was actively involved and engaged in his creative work. All of it. At every stage, God's wisdom determined what was to be made and how things were to be progressing. Read Genesis chapter 1, right? Day 1, day 2, day 3. And here in this passage, we see that God assigned to the sea its limit. The sea has a, a, a definite boundary, a defined boundary that it cannot transgress, but only at his command. We saw that with the flood in Genesis, right? The oceans did not flood the world before then. When God ordered the world, right, the, the, the face of the earth was covered by the waters of the deep, but he spoke and land formed and emerged from the deeps. And we have the, 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 the terrestrial realm, realm here. And only at his command did the world flood, and then at his command, those waters receded. But to this day, have the waters covered the earth again? No. You can talk about a tidal wave. You can talk about when a hurricane comes and the sea level rises. It doesn't cover the earth. God has set the boundaries of even the water's existence here. He has established a fixed structure in his universe, and humanity's existence depends on it. It absolutely depends on it. Like our planet is exactly where it needs to be in relational distance to our sun. A, a fraction closer, we'd be really crispy. A fraction further, and we're like human popsicles. There'd be no life. We'd cease to exist. Right? This is, we're in a fine-tuned universe, as, as creation scientists talk about. A fine-tuned universe by God's Wise design. Now, in cosmology, which is the field of study uh, that seeks to understand the physical universe as a whole, it, it draws from different scientific disciplines here, there is a particular principle that has been advanced by many, uh, many scientists, theoretical physicists and astronomers, talked about, uh, that they call the anthropic principle. And this is the principle uh, that human existence... Life here on planet Earth is dependent on numerous cosmological parameters that have to fall exactly within a specified numerical range of values for human life even to exist. And if it were to fall outside of that range of values, human life would cease to exist. And the point of that principle here is that it is statistically improbable that all of these numerous variables would line up so perfectly through a random event or process. It's just statistically impossible. And that a reasonable and rational, again, a lot of people aren't, but a reasonable and rational mind person must conclude then that the universe was guided by some type of intelligent design. One must conclude, if you were to look at this, when you look at this reality that human life is dependent on countless, countless of small uh, range of values and events, whether it's, it's, it's something about gas or at the atomic level or our distance from other planets or from our sun, our place in our galaxy, our galaxy in relation to other galaxies, all of these things would conclude that the universe was fine-tuned for our existence by a creator who engineered the world exactly to suit our needs. 
and exactly to sustain our life. It's the wisdom of God in creation. It has so many implications for us. So many. Solomon's showing his son here that he can trust wisdom because God made the world in wisdom. And with wisdom. So he shouldn't live in fear. Because God has ordered the world to work according to his wisdom. He can trust wisdom. He can follow wisdom because the world is under God's wise control. Does that mean everything always works out the way we want it to? No. Does it mean we won't face difficulties or face affliction or even die by a natural disaster? Of course not. But we know the end of wisdom here is the reality that if we are in Christ, who is the wisdom of God and wisdom from God, then even though we die physically, we still have eternal life. That's promised to us. But he can trust wisdom. He need not live in fear. And you and I need not live in fear, brothers and sisters. I was reading a study this week uh, done of, of 10,000, I believe it was 16 to 25-year-olds. It was a study con- uh, conducted last year and a paper was written on it uh, uh, and trying to track the thoughts and feelings of young people, 16 to 25, concerning their thoughts and feelings about climate change and whether or not governments were doing enough uh, in terms of this topic. And over 50% of 16 to 25-year-olds expressed how they felt sadness despair, anxiety, fear concerning climate. That somehow this world only had a few years left, right? Because of all of the paranoia out there about, the, you know, global cooling. I don't know if it's cooling or warming. I get confused all the time. Is it cooling? Is it warming? You know, what's it going to, right? And there's fear and anxiety. And now you have governments, you know, just kind of scrambling and fumbling all over the self, virtue signaling to try to figure out how are we going to stop, uh, stop carbon emissions and be at zero carbon emissions by, by X range. And oh, we're going to eliminate fertilizer. We've got to do this because the world's going to end. Fear, despondency, hopelessness in, in, in the emerging generations here. That's not wisdom, is it? That's not the wisdom we see at play here. We do not live in fear of hurricanes or a world-ending virus because this is God's creation. And our all-wise creator is still in control of it. This world will not end until the appointed time, the fixed time on God's calendar. Not a moment before, not a moment after. All according to the counsel of His will, His own purpose. It's not going to be an asteroid coming to wipe out life on earth. It's not going to be a coronavirus wipe out all humanity. The glaciers aren't all going to melt and we're all going to be inundated and killed. This is God's world and he made it with a fixed order. And even in the disorder that sin has brought into this world will not change God's control over his creation. Don't fall for that garbage. Those are lies. And it's amazing how many people have, have bought this, these rival voices that have introduced fear and hopelessness into their lives. Don't fall prey to that garbage. Now this fixed order, fixed created order also serves as a model for the fixed moral boundaries God has set for mankind. There's a parallel here. If God has fixed and ordered structures for his universe and how things are to run, 
than in terms of the moral and ethical things that Solomon is trying to teach his son here. God has also fixed moral boundaries. They are the guardrails of life. That if you stay within them here, there is life, there is freedom, there is joy, there is happiness, there is success, there are riches. But if you go off the rails, right, that's, that's death. God has set moral boundaries so that society does not collapse into anarchy and full-out evil. That's why he has embedded his law in the human heart. The moral law is there. Otherwise, imagine if it wasn't. The depth of evil and depravity on full display. Yeah, we would all kill each other. The world truly would end that way. But God hasn't designed it that way. He's put his law, the moral code, into the human heart. Nothing on earth earth here can touch us apart from his will. So don't fear. Trust in our all-wise creator. Fifthly, wisdom we see here delights in the creator and creation. We see there at 30, 31, then I was beside him like a master workman, or some of your translation says I was beside him continually. That master workman or continually, it's one of those phrases, words that scholars debate over and over again, nothing to get hung up on there. Um, And I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. What we see in verses 30, 31 is this delight and praise at the center of this poem. This personified wisdom, delighting in the Lord and rejoicing in the Lord. The, the, the literal uh, phrasing there in the grammar is dancing before the Lord. Such a celebration, such exuberance, such joy. In fact, we see in Job 38, describing angels Worshipping and singing for joy at the dawn of creation, right? This was something to truly rejoice over and celebrate. God's heavenly host that was watching, right? Creation unfold here. We're dancing and celebrating and singing and rejoicing. It's the response to wisdom in creation, always. Worship and praise. Shouldn't that be our response as well? When we reflect upon the creator, when we reflect upon his creation. What do we see in creation if not God's own joy going public? God taking delight in what he makes. We see that in Genesis, don't we? At the end of every day of creation, what do we see the Lord saying about his work? It's good. It was good. And at the end of it, it was very good, right? His work brought him incredible joy and it's not because he didn't have joy before but rather it was an overflow of his own joy god didn't create the world brothers and sisters he was bored he's like there's not really much out here you know it's kind of like you move into a bigger house and you realize i don't have enough furniture for it right now wow there's all this empty space he didn't go look out in the cosmos and go i gotta put some stuff in here you know feeling kind of empty he wasn't bored he didn't need some entertainment to make himself feel fulfilled god didn't create the world and everything in it and us because he was lonely because he had some need in and of himself that could only be filled by him making something and that that was external to him would somehow fulfill him 
That's, that's not why. In fact, Paul, right, in, in Acts chapter 17, 24 and 25, right, when he's uh, there in Athens, he declares that the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. No, he wasn't lonely. He wasn't bored. This may bother you, but he doesn't need you. He doesn't need us. There's nothing about us that completes God. There's some stupid worship songs out there that make it sound like God needed us. God does not need us. If he needs us, then he's not God. If God isn't all sufficient and joyful and happy and fulfilled in and of himself, he is not a God worthy to be worshipped. He needs no one. He needs nothing. But out of the overflow of this inter-Trinitarian joy, the triune God, fully happy within himself, Father, Son, and Spirit, made something. And that spilled out, that joy spilled out into his creation, and God took delight in it. It's so beautiful. And I love, it's just fascinating how Solomon here describes wisdom's delight, not just in the things that God made out there, but also delighting, it says here, in the children of man. This personified wisdom is saying here that the object of her delight is the person on the street, the person in the market, the person that she's calling out in the city square and at the city gates, that they, the children of man, can be recipients of her knowledge. And because she delights in them, this is why she, she makes this strong appeal to share in her life. She delights in the children of men. Now let's look at this last portion here because we've actually come to the last of the lessons of the father to the son, specifically from the father to the son. We still have chapter 9, and that's gonna, that kind of builds off what we've been looking at in the last couple of chapters here. But this is the end of the formula we've seen of the father's appeal to the son directly. Right? Solomon talking to his young son. So this is the final invitation and warning in the father's lessons here. But now there's a little shift. In all of the other lessons, we've seen the father asking the son, right? Or appealing to the son. My son, listen to wisdom. My son, right? Treasure wisdom, get wisdom, etc. Right? Now we have wisdom kind of stepping into the place of the father and directly asking the sons to find her and listen to her. Verse 32, and now, O sons, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. This is wisdom speaking. Hear instruction and be wise and do not neglect it. Blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors. Before, where did we find her? On the heights, the city gates, the entrance places, right? The marketplace where the masses were gathered, addressing uh, them to, to, to learn from her. But now we see her in a different place. She's in a house. She's in her house. And she's addressing the sons to maintain daily vigilance at her door. It's a shift, and this is going to make sense here in chapter 9. When wisdom opens the door, they must not miss the opportunity, the unique opportunity to gain admission into wisdom's house. See, the contrast between the adulteress and the fool 
and the simple that showed up at her door. And now she's saying, the person who's pursuing me needs to daily wait at my door and be on the lookout for me. And when I open it, they don't want to miss that. Blessed, she says, blessed are those who keep my ways. Blessed is the one who listens to and keeps watch for me, waits beside my doors. Right? We've looked at the extensive blessings of wisdom. There's no greater treasure here. And she's repeating that. Blessed are those. These are beatitudes. Think about the Sermon on the Mount. The same thing being conveyed here. Those who keep my ways, those who listen to me, a blessing in store for them. And verse 35 here seems to adapt the promise that a lot of people know in Proverbs 18, 22, where it says, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. So now this is kind of shifting a little bit. Uh, here, finding goodness and obtaining favor from the Lord is not from finding a good wife, though that's a good thing. It's from finding wisdom. A person who finds wisdom finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. The one who finds her is the one who seeks her diligently. She's the one who pays, pays close attention to wisdom for her to open her doors and invite them in. That person will obtain the most precious prize of all, eternal life. He who finds wisdom finds life. There are high stakes. We've already seen this over and over again. High stakes to finding wisdom or missing wisdom, ignoring wisdom. It's a matter of life and death. The one who is vigilant, the one who keeps watch, finds wisdom and therefore finds life. The one who's not vigilant, the one who ignores wisdom, rejects wisdom, finds what? Death. Finds death. In fact, the person who's not vigilant proves that they actually hate wisdom. That's what it says there. And loves death. That's the absolute height of foolishness. Don't miss wisdom. If God through wisdom made everything, if God through wisdom has given you life, you owe everything to the Creator. You owe it to follow Him in wisdom's way where He holds out a promise to us of eternal life for all those who love Him. None are without excuse. All make a choice. It's the only options. Love wisdom, and therefore find life. Hate wisdom, and therefore you find death. Life, death. No third way. No middle way whatsoever. Don't miss wisdom. Now, how do we respond to the wisdom of God, especially this, this wisdom of God displayed in creation? I've already said we, exactly what wisdom demonstrated there. Our response must be adoration and praise. It's what we see in Paul writing to the believers in Rome in, in the 11th chapter of Romans. When he contemplated the wisdom of God, he broke out in doxology. Look, Romans eleven thirty three through 36 Paul writes, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments. How inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are 
all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. When we see the Son of God, the incarnation of the word and wisdom of God, we should bow in adoration, praise, and worship. There is no other response. Any response apart from that is a rejection of him. It's a rejection of wisdom. And nowhere is the wisdom of God more clearly displayed than in the cross of Christ. The foolishness of God is shown to be infinitely wiser than that of man. And the weakness of God is shown to be infinitely stronger than whatever strength man portrays to have. And it's through the foolishness, brothers and sisters, of this preaching of the cross of Christ, that the wisdom, that in the wisdom of God and pleasure of God, those who believe in Christ are saved. Who would have imagined that, right? Who, what wisdom of man could ever come up with something so glorious? What a mind fashioned our redemption through what the world would consider absolute folly. So that the wisdom of the world would be demonstrated to be utterly foolish. That's the wisdom of God and how great it is, brothers and sisters. I'm going to close with Paul's powerful statement concerning the wisdom of God in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And I want you to think about it and I want you to consider, as Paul says, your calling, brothers. Consider Christ. Consider His glory and His salvation and His redemption of unworthy people like us. 26 through 31 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Christ, the wisdom from God, the wisdom of God, is our only hope, and He is our only boast.